As you're making your way in, let's go ahead and uh, ask the Lord uh, for his help this morning. God, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you have given us everything that we need for life and godliness in your precious book. Father, we thank you that uh, as you bring us together to look at your word, Father, might you give us hearts to understand. Father, hearts to be challenged. If when we look at your word, we find that our, our opinions are divergent with what your word declares, might we conform ourselves to your word today? Might we understand what it says? Might we confess and repent and follow hard after you and your word in obedience this morning? And Father, might we live a faith that works? We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning, and as always, um, it is our joy to open the Word of God together, and we're going to ask the same question that we ask every single week, and the question is this, what does the Bible say? Not necessarily what do I think or what do you think, but what does the Bible say? And specifically, we want to ask the question, what does the Bible say from the book of James, chapter 2, verses 14 through 19? So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there, James 2, 14 through 19. And after we ask the question, what does the Bible say? Then we follow up with the question, how should we then live? And we're going to look at that this morning as well. And it's going to be important, more important than ever to ask ourselves that question as we get to the book of James in this passage, um, because there would be some that would deem this passage of James to be the most controversial portion of James. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Mainly it, it stems from a seeming, and that word is important, seeming contradiction between some of the things that Paul has outlined for us in his epistles and what James would say here. Specifically, a potential contradiction between what is faith alone by grace alone and what James would present here. Our prayer this morning is that if we look into God's word, we will find that there is no contradiction, that the Holy Spirit will illumine the word for us so that we might have clarity and encouragement in what the word of God declares. Now, as you're turning to James chapter two, let me make first a quick statement and second a question. And the first statement is this, it's a truth claim. And the truth claim is this, is I wear glasses. Now, I need someone to raise their hand and verify or deny this claim. I have glasses on, I have old man reading glasses on. And you know that they're old man reading glasses because the optometrist that gave them to me is younger than me. That's how you know you're getting older, is when your medical professionals are younger than you. Okay, now that's a truth claim. Now, this is the audience participation portion of it. That truth claim was rather easy to verify. Can someone present to me a truth claim that you have heard that maybe is a little bit harder to verify? Aliens landed in Arizona, that's fantastic. Now, now why is that hard to verify? Okay, all right, so it's a claim, but it's a claim about something that happened in time. We needed to be there at that specific time, and in space. We needed to be able to see all of Arizona at the exact same time that we think that they may or may not have landed. If we could do that, we could verify this claim. Excellent. Any other truth claims? I'm a good person. You are a good person. Drew is a good person. Now, this is a fantastic truth claim. I did not put him in the audience to make this claim. But this truth claim is, it's tricky for a couple of reasons. And first off, it's tricky because what is the criteria? What does good mean, right? First off, we have to establish what does good mean, right? And, and once we understand that, once we're all aligned on a definition of what does good mean, then we can understand, well, how do we know that Drew is good? Like how, what does that look like in his life? Wes? What's that? He's, he's not good because the Bible says so. Okay, all right, very good. Wes has is, is got a counterpoint over here. Um, uh, he, he threw down, he didn't say this, but I saw it in his eyes. He threw down Romans 3.23, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God on Drew over here, right? So we know that, right? Now here's the problem is we're gonna get to James today and we're gonna see a hypothetical discourse. James is gonna set up, for, he's gonna construct this hypothetical straw man conversation and what he's gonna do is he's gonna put a truth claim out there. He's gonna say there are people out there that are claiming things and these things that they are claiming, we need to decide if they were true or not. And this is the claim. The claim is, is someone's faith salvific? Is it true? Is it living? Is it saving faith? Now, 
While we might think that this is one of those claims that is hard to determine, James is actually going to break it down for us really simply. It's going to be one simple test. It's going to be really simple for James to say, but somehow for us as humans in this fallen world, it is really hard for us to accept. And so he's going to spend some time walking us through it. James chapter 2 verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well, the demons also believe and shudder. Now you may remember so far that in our study through the book of James, we've had this title slide, right? And it's talking about a faith that works. And I hate to be a spoiler alert, but like Wade has been like preparing us for this message the whole time, right? It is a faith that works. We're going to see James kicking this off, chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. He starts with a question. 14 through 26 is really all kind of one section. We're going to break it down into two parts. Uh, I'm, we're going to be in 14 through 19 this morning, and then Craig's going to lead us through the last part of chapter 2 next week. But this morning, we're going to look at a hypothetical discourse about what living faith is, what dead faith is, and then next week we're going to pivot to from the hypothetical to the actual as James is going to show us biblical historical examples of what God has said living faith is so that there is no confusion. And our main idea this morning is this, our main idea is that living faith is manifest through loving obedience. Living faith is manifest through loving obedience. Now these words are important because what we are not saying we are not saying is that living faith is created or generated or accomplished through loving obedience. That's very important. Neither are we saying that loving obedience produces or establishes living faith. Rather, living faith is manifest through loving obedience. The word manifest, according to the latest dictionary I could find, says to make clear or obvious. God in his perfect plan has said saving faith should be obvious. When a holy creator God takes a person, takes a child of wrath, and he saves them, they are no longer an old creation. They are a new creation in Jesus Christ, and he puts his Holy Spirit into that individual. It is manifest. It is obvious. If you think creator God can act on a person's life and no one can know that it happens, you don't understand how big and how awesome our God is. He does not leave things unchanged. That is not the God that we serve. That is not the God of the scriptures. Living faith is manifest through loving obedience. And so as we consider that together, we're going to see first someone of dead faith. Verse 14. It says, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? That word use means benefit or advantage. James is talking to brethren. He's talking to believers you can say, what use is it, my brethren? What profit is it? What advantage is it, my brethren, if someone? And then he introduces this someone. And we know that this contrasting someone is different than the brethren that he just mentioned. So we have this someone. We have this hypothetical someone. And he says, what benefit is there to this someone, this generic someone, this mysterious someone? This someone may be you. It may be me. Someone we don't know who this someone is. He's claiming that he has faith, but he has no works. What if someone makes that claim? He says, I am a possessor of faith, I'm a possessor of faith, but he has no works, he has no deeds, he has no actions. What benefit is that? What use is that? What advantage is that to that individual? He says, can that faith save him? Now, once again, it's important to look at the words. He says, can that faith or the faith that the person referred to save me? He's not saying, can faith save? There's this underlying assumption in James's argument here that there is a living and saving faith. That's the whole reason we're having the discussion. If there was no living and saving faith, we wouldn't need to debate on whether a faith was living or saving or not because it didn't exist. But we know that it exists, so we have to debate it and we have to understand what it is because for you and I, the consequences are severe. So it's not can faith save, it's can that faith, that faith that is 
presupposed on a life that is completely unchanged with no works at all being demonstrated. Now, it may not be immediately obvious to us, um, but people smarter than me, and I read their books, tell me that this can that faith save him at the end of verse 14 is like the Greek version of a rhetorical question. It implies the negative. So Paul, James is already telling us at the beginning, he's saying, can that faith save? Can that faith deliver? Can that faith redeem? Of course it can. There's no way. But let me show you. And so he's going to show us. This is kind of like, if, any, if there's people in this room that have more than zero children, at some point in your life you've said this, you'll be like, you're lying to me, aren't you? There's some phrase to that extent, right? You're lying to me, aren't you? Like, like it's implied. The answer is, I know you are. I once had a child, we were coming back from a, a July 4th celebration, we had these glow sticks in the car, this was years ago, I only had two children at that time, my life, I had more smiles then, I have five children now, but no, we were driving in the car, and in the back seat, my two children had these glow sticks that they had acquired at this event, and all of a sudden I look in the rearview mirror, it's dark outside, which means anything that would emit light interior to the car was easily seen, and I asked my child, I said, did you bite the glow stick? This is, we're trying to get a truth claim out of this situation here. And my young child says no. And if, even if I didn't hear her words, I could have seen because in the reflection, there was this bluish fluorescent mouth mouthing no, right? No, it's a rhetorical question. By the way, as your kids get older, that question is harder to figure out the truth of sometimes. What a joy for young children that aren't great at lying yet. But Paul is, James is asking a rhetorical question here. He's saying, what use is it? Can that faith save him? And the answer is no. But before we move on, let me ask this quick question. Why might someone feel the need to claim faith apart from works? Why does someone do this? You, you can think of a hypothetical someone. Doesn't have to be you. Doesn't have to be the person next to you. Think of a hypothetical someone where someone might claim faith apart from works. Why would they do that? Why are humans compelled to do that? Oh yeah, great answer. We love our sin. We don't want to have to obey the Lord. It'd be easier just to say like, hey, I can have faith apart from works. That would be fantastic. I can do whatever I want. What else? Any other, why people might think this is necessary? Mm-hmm. And as a 10-year-old, that was scary. And so I said, yeah, I'm going to trust in God. Yeah, 10-year-old, mom says hell is scary. 10-year-old nods, says, I'll, I'll put my faith in that. I don't like scary things. It's a good thing for a 10-year-old not to like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, and really that's what this is all boiled down to. Wes West is saying it's about a misinterpretation of who God is and who our holy God is. And when he says that we have faith in Christ alone, he is absolutely accurate in those statements. But when God works on a life, that saving faith is never alone, Calvin said. Amen. James is going to illustrate for us, by the way, how ridiculous this question is. He's going to put up another hypothetical scenario. We see this in verse 15. It says, if... Some translations use the word suppose. So suppose there's this hypothetical scenario. And as most hypothetical scenarios go, there's a situation, a response, and a conclusion. Verse 15 starts with a situation. It says, if a brother or sister is without clothing and need of daily food. He says there is a group of people that have a problem. That group of people is brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Now, it's very important that he positions it that way because all throughout Scripture, we see that God commands us to do good to all people, especially to those of the household of faith. And in fact, Jesus said this. He said, whoever does the will of my father is my brother and sister and mother. And so what James is crafting is a hypothetical argument in which the people in this argument should be our closest earthly relations. Right? They are the ones that we should be the closest to. It is to these individuals that James says the brother or sister is without clothing. 
they're in need of daily food. The one whom you should be quickest to serve, quickest to meet their needs, they have not the basic things to live to protect themselves and to feed themselves. Said another way, one of your closest relations is in the most dire of situations. They do not have that which is going to keep them warm tonight. They do not have that which will fill their belly tonight. And they are your closest relations. That is the scenario that James has picked for us. And he says, and in that scenario, this is the response, verse 16. Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled. And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. Go in peace may not strike with us very quickly, but it was a very common Jewish phrase. Jesus himself used it, Mark 5:34. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. It was basically a form of goodbye to be able to say, go in peace. But it would be like saying, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, but giving them nothing. That is what James is saying. By the way, when Jesus says go in peace, it is only after he has met the needs of those whom he loves because he gives us the perfect example of what that looks like. Jesus says, go in peace and you actually get to go in peace because your savior is there and he has met your needs perfectly. And so we know it is not the words that are the problem. It's not what these people said, right? I mean, it'd be like us saying, hey, best of luck. Hope it works out. Thoughts and prayers are with you. Maybe we would throw a little praying hands emoji in a group text somewhere. I'm gonna get in trouble for that later. Um, But all of those things are easy for us to say, right? They're easy things for us to respond to, but how are we actually serving and loving our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ? By the way, just like saying go in peace, there's nothing wrong with those words. There's nothing wrong with any of those other things I've said. There is nothing wrong with giving our thoughts and our prayers and our attention to our brothers and sisters in Christ, and then we marry them together with loving acts of service. James is saying claiming faith without works is as ridiculous as telling a brother poorly clothed and hungry, go in peace and then walking the other way. That's what James is saying. No one would deny that kind of hypocrisy. I am walking, by the way, my closest relation is sitting here, poorly clothed, shivering and hungry. I say, go in peace and walk on. He's saying that's what it means to claim faith without works. It is that ridiculous. By the way, quick sidebar for just a moment. Um, I feel the need to make sure that we're clear here. This hypothetical scenario from James is intended to illustrate a point about the difference between living faith and dead faith. It is not intended to be a primer on to whom and in what situations and scenarios we should serve our brothers and sisters in Christ. And by that, I mean, it doesn't mean that a believer should only support our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we should only support them at which they are at their most destitute, missing half their clothes and hungry. That's not the point of this passage. The point of this passage is to draw a contrast between extremes. James is saying that faith without works is as worthless as words of comfort to a destitute brother as we pass by doing nothing. Verse 16 ends with this phrase, what use is that? It ends with the exact same words that started verse 14. So James has bookended for us this section. He says, there is a truth claim that we have denied. There is an example that illustrates the ridiculousness of that thing. What benefit is that? Just as there would be no benefit to your brother for you to walk on by with empty words coming out of your mouth, there would be no benefit to you to make a claim of faith when there is no evidence of that in your life through good works. Jesus writes for us in Matthew 25, 35, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in, naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When do we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison and come to you? Then the king I love that. He described the king will answer. Our king of kings and lord is that he will say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them you did it to me. 
John writes for us in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. The glorious thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ is Jesus is asking us to do nothing more than what he has already done. To put our faith and trust in him, to submit to the will of the Father and to walk on this earth the same way that Jesus did. He gave us an example to follow. We know what it looks like. He laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Verse 17, but whoever has the world's goods. I love John. He just kind of sneaks in there. Whoever has the world's goods. By the way, these are the world's goods. These are the things the world cares about. And sees his brother in need. And, and John just, man, he lays it down and closes his heart against him. That's how John starts. We have closed our heart against our brother. And then he asks a rhetorical question. How does the love of God abide in that person? If you have worldly goods and a brother in need and you cannot meet that need, how does the love of God abide in that person? James is not inconsistent with the rest of Scripture and his claims. They are supported in numerous ways here in John as well. You see, John reminds us that Jesus laid down his life. We ought to lay down our lives. He says, how does the love of God abide in that perfect person? Think about this. What kind of worthless, empty, dead, loveless faith are you claiming to have when you see a brother in need and you close your heart against him? That is what James is saying. That is what John is saying. That is what our Lord is saying to you through his word this morning and to me as well. And then he ends with these words you're familiar with. 1 John 3.18, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but indeed in truth. That is what Christ has called us to. What benefit is it, my brethren? It's a rhetorical question. We already know the answer, but James wants to leave no doubt because the consequences are too grave. The differences between saving faith and dying faith is between living and dead, between heaven and hell, between glorification and damnation. Those are the consequences of not understanding what James is outlined for us here. So James makes it very clear. He gives us a warning against workless faith, verse 17. One commentator, Ronald Blue, writes, Workless faith is worthless faith. It is unproductive, sterile, barren, dead. James writes, verse 17, Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. This word dead is necros, from which we get the words necrotic or necrosis. James wants to be abundantly clear. This isn't something that is merely ineffective, right? This isn't one of those faiths where like, you know, this faith didn't get straight A's this week, but it's pretty good. It's like runner-up. No, he's saying it's dead. He's talking about an inward state. It is non-existent. It is necros. He says, even so, faith that has no works is dead by itself. There is nothing accompanying it. We're going to see in the last verse of this chapter, cheating on Craig for a moment, who's going to lead us through it next week. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Even in our modern culture, we all know that if the spirit is over here and the body is over here, this body is dead. We can see it in all of our media. We can watch little movies like we know it, whether it's an animal or a person in our animated films. There's like this little wispy thing that goes out of the body. The spirit has left the body. The body is dead. James has said, faith without works is dead. It's necros. The commentator Douglas Moo writes this. He says, clearly we have here a passage that lies at the very heart of James' concern. He is deeply troubled by an attitude towards faith that sees it mainly as a verbal profession, such as the confession that God is one. We'll see that in verse 19 in just a second. That is a faith that is apart from works, and James views this faith as dead and barren. It does not have the power to save or to justify. It is absolutely vital to understand that the main point of this argument expressed three times from verses 14 through 26 is not the works must be added to faith, but that genuine faith includes works. That is its very nature. When God, because the alternative is this, the alternative is to say is that God redeems people and then lets them sit and wallow in their sin forever. I was... Not in my notes, because I was thinking as I was driving here this morning. I have five children. My last one was grafted into the family tree. 
What if all I did was take his name or he take my name? I left him where he was. I did not put him into my home. I did not feed him. I did not clothe him. I would not be a good father. And we have a good God. And when he puts people into his family, he does not leave them in their twisted children of wrath state. And it is this nature that we need to consider as we see James' second illustration. We see someone of living faith, verse 18. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. This word show is to make known, to demonstrate He's continuing his hypothetical discourse, and now he's introduced a second someone. This is like credits at the end of a film when, like, uncredited, you know, bartender number seven, cab driver number three. Like, there's a second someone in James's story here. The first someone is now confronted by the second someone. The challenge is this. You have faith without works. How can you show it to me? How can you demonstrate it? How can you manifest it? Back at the very beginning, we said people make truth claims all the time. We say, I'm a good person. I've got a good marriage in my workplace. I'm an empathetic leader. I'm great at collaboration. How do we verify these claims? God has said this claim is simple. Faith without works, how can you show it to me? How can you demonstrate it? How can you manifest? Once again, it's a rhetorical question from the second someone to the first someone because it's ridiculous. Right now, you and I are present in something called the Lone Star State. From 93 to 2003, I lived in a state that was colloquially known as the Show Me State. Does anyone know what state that was? Missouri, that's right. Oh, yes. Cape Girardeau, Missouri was my home for 10 years. And I don't know if it's that Missourians are like categorically untrusting of people or not, but, but that is how they somehow got this motto. They're like, hey, yeah, prove it to me, right? One of my younger siblings introduced me to the modern version of the show me state, and it goes like this, I wrote it down. It says, quote, picks or it didn't happen. <laughs> now, some of you are chuckling, some of you aren't. Let me translate for just a minute. Picks is short for pictures. So pictures or it didn't happen. You're like, dude, you should have seen this fish I caught the other day, and you're like, picks or it didn't happen. Like, like we live in a digital age, like if you can't show me a picture, this event didn't exist. It didn't happen. No one was there. Your party was lame. You didn't catch the fish. The second someone is saying, show me the works or it didn't happen. Because I know who God is. And I know he's a holy God. And I know he's a loving God. And when he redeems people to himself, he does not leave them in their state. When Almighty God puts the Spirit of God into a redeemed child of God, there is evidence. It is manifest. Paul shows us this in in two two different ways in Titus. Titus 1.16, it says, this is kind of the first side of the coin. It says, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him. This is the someone of James 2.14. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. People think James is just sitting out there on an island. The New Testament is prolific with passages that support exactly what James is saying here. And then the other side, Titus 3.8, this is a trustworthy statement and concerning these things I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. I'm actually going to back up just a minute. I didn't put it in my notes, but I realized later, Titus 3.5 starts like this. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. Right? Let's be clear. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. It is his washing, his renewing, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. God did a lot of stuff. He washed us, he renewed us, he poured his spirit into us. He made us his own. Then we get to Titus 3.8. This is a trustworthy statement. That those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. Quick question. What would it mean to profess to know God but by deeds deny him? Give me a couple of examples. What would that look like for us? 
How would we profess to know God, but by our deeds deny him? Or someone who claims faith, but has no works, what would that look like? Yeah, yeah. So remaining in your sin. And then the great thing about sin is sin always adds to sin. And so then we have to hide it. Yeah, I, I had a friend that he told me one time, he always tells his daughters, he has a lot of daughters. And he told his daughters one time, he's like, lying is hard. You know why? Remembering the truth is like, you remember what actually happened. When you lie, you make a lie, and then you make another lie, and then you make a little, and you got to figure out how to cover up the first lie. And he gets very confusing. And I'm not smart enough to do that. That's why I always got caught. But that's what we do with sin. We stay in our sin and then we hide it and we cover it up through layers. Somebody said something over here. What is another way that we profess to know God but by our deeds deny him? I said Yeah, so uh, a conceitedness, a self-centeredness. Right, because by definition, when we put our faith and trust in God, we recognize who he is and we recognize who we are in light of who he is. So we deny him when we live a life of selfishness and conceitedness only for our own good. That's, that's the person in 1 John 3 who he has the world's goods, but he can't part with them. He can't share them with his brother. He needs them too much. It's all about me. Anyone else? How do we profess to know God but by our deeds deny him? Paul. Okay. Whew, look at this guy. He remembered what we talked about in James chapter 1. Prove yourselves doers, the word not merely hearers who delude themselves, right? The problem is, is the hearer deludes himself. He's somehow thought that because he came to equip class, he's good for the week. He can go out this week and do whatever he wants. He's got it all covered. Paul writing to Titus agreed with James that the outcome of saving faith is good deeds. By the way, we see this again in that great hall of faith. The writer of Hebrews also affirms this in Hebrews chapter 11. We're not going to turn there, but Hebrews 11:4 says, by faith Abel offered. Now that's a weird place to start, but I'm going to start there because there's a pattern in Hebrews 11. I love patterns. I'm an engineer. I just like to look at things and dissect things and whatever. And I'll tell you what the pattern is. The pattern is this, is that in Hebrews, Hebrews 11, it goes like this. There is by faith, person acted. Okay, so by faith, subject, it's a noun, verb. By faith, person did a thing. By faith, Abel offered. By faith, Noah prepared an ark. By faith, Abraham went out. By faith, Abraham offered up. By faith, Jacob blessed. By faith, Joseph gave orders. By faith, Moses refused to be called. By the way, that guy threw away some riches. That's the hall of faith. These are those whom God has written in his enduring word as those who are examples of faith, but that faith is manifest in obedience. Their faith was manifest in their lives as they walked in obedience to their creator. The one who had saved them by grace alone, through faith alone, now worked through them for his glory alone. That is what God does. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, Paul puts this together again in a very helpful way. The order is important here, Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is what and Wes was referring us to earlier. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Okay, we got that. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship. Whose workmanship? Our workmanship? No, God's workmanship. But God created us for something. He created us in Christ Jesus for good works. That is what God did. He created us in him for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in him. Those who are in Christ Jesus are God's workmanship. We are no longer the old creation. We are a new creation. New creation unto good works which God prepared that we should walk in them. That's what God has done. He has redeemed us to himself for good works. The natural outcome of God saving you by grace alone through faith alone is obedience to Christ. That is what God has declared in his word. To deny that is to deny what God has said. He has created you for good works. 
Douglas Moo again writes this. He says, Paul denies that works can have any value in bringing us into relationship with God. James is insisting that once that relationship is established, works are essential. Paul denies any efficacy to pre-conversion works, but James is pleading for the absolute necessity of post-conversion works. And, you know, as I was reflecting on that, I thought he, he said it very well, but he's also trying to present the, the seeming distinction. But, but in reality, when you read through James and Paul, they're both saying both things, right? Is that there is no efficacy to pre-conversion works, but there is an absolute necessity of post-conversion works because there is a spirit of God inside of you. And you and I are not strong enough to thwart the spirit of God. When God decides he will act in your life, he will act. James 2, 18, this someone says, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. The someone of living faith says, I can show you what God has done in my life. Because the same creator God that saved me out of my sin and redeemed me and washed me and renewed me and poured his spirit into me is now working out through me good works. It is all for his glory. Someone of living faith can by God's grace through God's power demonstrate that saving faith through loving obedience as manifest in good works. That's what James is saying. But James wants to give us one more warning. He gives us a warning against rebellious faith, verse 19. James 2.19, he says, you believe that God is one you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Now this may not be immediately obvious to us, but remember James was writing to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad. He was writing to Jewish, historically Jewish individuals, and so they would have immediately known that James is making some very bold claim here when he says, you believe that God is one. Listen to this, Mark 12, 28. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, Jesus, what commandment is the first most of all? Jesus answered the foremost is here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And then he goes on to say, you shall love him. That comes from Deuteronomy 6, 4. Here, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one In 2022, Reuven Kimmelman, professor of classic rabbinical literature in the Department of Near East and Judaic Studies at Brandeis University, wrote an article that I read. And it says this, Shema Yisrael, or the Shema, is the central affirmation of Judaism. The prayer expresses belief in the singularity of God that is in God's oneness and incomparability. The Shema is traditionally recited twice a day as part of the morning shacharit and evening arvit or mariv, I pronounced all those wrong, I'm sure, services. It serves as the climax of the liturgy on Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the Jewish year. Jews often recite the prayer as their dying words, including Jewish martyrs who throughout the ages made it their final profession of faith before being put to death. This prayer dates from the first millennium BC when it was recited as part of regular services in the ancient temple in Jerusalem and it consists of three separate passages taken from the Hebrew Bible, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, which we just read, Deuteronomy 11, 13 and following, and Numbers 15. James is saying to scattered Jewish believers, one of the most sacred parts of your religion let this sing in. One of the most sacred parts of your religion, the Shema. If you were to wake up every day and go to bed every night reciting it, even mentally assenting to it, but you do not manifest a life of living faith through loving obedience, you are no better than demons. Let that sink in for just a moment. That is what James is saying to these Jewish believers. The central part of your ritualistic, legalistic law-abiding faith. You can mentally assent to that. But if you're not manifesting a life of loving obedience, you are no better than the demons. Warren Wearsby says this, people with dead faith substitute words for deeds. They know the correct vocabulary for prayer and testimony and can even quote the right verses from the Bible. Maybe you know some of these people. 
Maybe they claim a faith, but is not demonstrated through works as God works out through them. But their walk does not measure up to their talk. They think that their words are as good as works and they are wrong, Warren Rearsby said. You see, James is saying that reciting the Shema, believing that God is one, is not a manifestation of living faith. Even the demons believe that. They believe it and they shudder. They fear. They tremble. That word means bristle. It's like the hair on the back of their neck is standing up because they know who God is. They know who God is. They know who he is better than you or I. Yesterday, I was talking to someone. He's not yet a famous theologian. He will be one day. His name is Joshua Scarborough. He said this. He said, demons have better theology than you. Let that marinate for just a moment. They know who God is, but theirs is a rebellious faith. Warren Wearsby writes again. He says, it comes as a shock to people that demons have faith. What could they believe? Well, for one thing, they believe in the existence of God. They are neither atheists nor agnostics. They also believe in the deity of Christ. Whenever they met Christ when he was on earth, earth, they bore witness to his sonship. Remember that? Every time people are like there and there's a demon there, it's like, oh, whoa, Jesus, son of God. It's like, oh, now we know who he is. We were wondering. The demons told us. They knew it. They knew his sonship, Mark 3. They believe in the existence of a place of punishment, Luke 8. And they also recognize Jesus Christ as the judge, Mark 5. If you are thinking that you're going to get to heaven based on the depth of your theological knowledge, you are wrong. Because there are those out there who have a deeper and broader understanding of who God is. And they are in rebellion to him. To claim to have a mental acknowledgement of who God is but not walk in obedience through faith is to have a rebellious faith, a worthless faith, a dead faith, truly no faith at all. Now, because most sins are common to all men, we may not be Jews, most of us in this room, at least not historically or by blood, but like the Shema was a ritual for the Jews, what rituals or practices that we have that we are somehow leaning on for our saving faith? What rituals or practices does modern Christendom lean on instead of true saving faith in Jesus Christ? Hmm? Baptism. baptism, yeah. By the way, that is, that is the twist of Satan, right? To take something which God has commanded us to do in obedience and turn it around and rely on that. Say, hey, I got dunked in water once. I can go out and live my life however I want. Yeah, I heard something over here. Attendance, and Attendance. yeah, showing up. Just being here, I was there. You should see my report card. I got like little star attendance. He also said giving, by the way. I'm sorry, say that one more time. Oh, walking an aisle. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, one of the, one of the challenges that we um, face is that he, he said walking an aisle is a profession of faith. One of the challenges is that sometimes what we do is we look back and we try and justify our faith based on some event that happened in the past, right? Some, some maybe it was an emotional response. Maybe we, we felt something at the time. But that's why 1 John 5, 13 says, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Not who believed, not who prayed, not who did something back then. John says, you believe in the name of the Son of God. Right now, you have eternal life. Because when God calls us, maybe he called you down an aisle and it wasn't real or maybe it was real, but if he did and he saved you that day, you don't get to walk out of there the same person. Anything else? Any other ways that we let rituals or practices get in the way in our modern Christendom today? Justin. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he says it's a natural man, right, that looks at his face in a mirror and then walks away, forgetting what kind of person he was. Like, like we come and we check the box of looking at Scripture and we walk away unchanged. He says we have to look deeply at this law, this law of liberty. 
Matthew Henry says, there is not only to be assent in faith, but consent, not only an assent to the truth of the word, but a consent to take Christ. Um, and it was when I was reading that, uh, that I was reminded of the marriage relationship, right? It's in a marriage that we say that we consent to take another person, right? That we use that word. We consent to take a person is our spouse. And for most of you, you know that from that point forward, if you are married, your life is changed, right? But, but think about this for just a moment. I was trying to imagine a hypothetical scenario. I was like, I can be like James. I can pick a hypothetical someone. Let's say someone says to you, Ben, like, dude, I saw the craziest wedding the other day. You're not going to believe it. Like, I was there, and there was this man and woman, and they walked down the aisle, and it was a beautiful ceremony. They got married, and they signed this marriage certificate, and then they went to the reception. Like, the cake was delicious out of this world. Mwah, it was great. And then, you know what? They left. And he went to his apartment and she went to hers. They never saw each other again. They never spent any time together. They never loved one another. They never brought gifts for one another. They never consummated their relationship. They never related to one another as husband and wife. How many of you would say like, yep, that's, a, that's an alive marriage? No, it's preposterous. It is dead. It is non-existent. And yet somehow... We think we can come to Christ. We think we can walk in that door. We think we can mouth some meaningless words in prayer. We can say, hey, do you have one of those, hey, God, I would like to be saved certificates. I'll sign that thing, and we can file it with the church secretary, and then we can walk out that door and pretend like we never knew him. James says it is a rebellious faith to know these things and to walk in disobedience. It is as if you're acting like the demons who say, I know God. I know exactly who he is. I know how powerful he is. I know what he expects of me. I know that one day he will judge me, but I just don't care. I'm going to do whatever I want. A couple of thoughts this morning in living what we learn. Scripture is clear that when we come to Christ by faith alone, through grace alone, God breathes life into a dead sinner. And so the first thing that I would challenge us with this morning is that we should strengthen our faith. We need to strengthen our faith. Hebrews eleven six says this, without faith it is impossible to please God. Right? We have to have faith to act in a way to please him for he who comes to him must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. We need to strengthen our faith the word declares that faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. We need to meditate. We need to, as James 1 reminds us, look deep into this law, this law of liberty. Because apart from faith, you can do no good thing. You can do nothing to please him. We also need to exercise our faith. By the way, let's be clear in one thing here is that James is not comparing abject disobedience with perfect holiness. He is comparing a workless dead faith to an obedient living faith. Philippians reminds us that if you are in Christ, God is not done working on you yet. For I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. God is working in you just like he's working in me. And some of you are going to say, yeah, but I'm struggling right now. I can see glimmers of obedience. I can see glimmers of good works, but I'm struggling. I'm fighting sin and temptation, and sometimes I'm losing and I would say, praise God, you are fighting and struggling. First John 1, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you are thinking, hey, I'm not a perfect person, maybe I have no faith, I would tell you, you are not alone in this room. I am not a perfect person either. That is a truth claim that can be verified. If you're wondering, my wife is right over there. She can verify this truth claim for you. My daughter can, my other children can. The only perfect one to walk this earth is Jesus Christ alone. And he gave us that example to follow after. Every one of us is here by grace through faith and we're being conformed to the image of Christ day after day after day. And if you're struggling with sin, if you're fighting temptation, do not give up fighting that good fight. Do not give up running that race. Strengthen your faith and remember that we are not alone. We should confess, repent, and walk in obedience and wake up tomorrow and do it again. You should find a brother or sister in Christ. Today, this week, 
confess to one another, pray for one another. James reminds us of that later in his book. We should encourage one another. 1 Thessalonians 5, we should spur one another on to love and good deeds. That is what God has called us to do. If you are sitting here today, by the way, and you know nothing of what it means to love and obey Christ, you're saying, I am the someone of verse 14. Maybe you have a mental effect mental assent of facts about God and Christ, but you have never assented to him in faith, or you have never submitted to him in faith, rather, then today is the day of salvation. So lastly, I would say, if you are not put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ today, then thirdly, confess your faith. That's where it starts. Confess your faith. Romans 10, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are never disappointed. There are so many things in this life we can put our faith and trust in, and they will disappoint us. God has said, in him we will not be disappointed. Verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. Verse 13, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Call on him today. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that when we call on you, we believe in you, we will not be disappointed. Everything that you have declared you will do, you will do. You will For those who cry out to you in faith, you will redeem them. You will wash them. You will regenerate them. You will pour your spirit into them. You will equip them for good works, which you prepared beforehand that they should walk in. Father, I I imagine that there are many here today, hopefully that that brought, brought clarity to what it means, what saving living faith looks like. But that does not mean that we are having an easy week. That does not mean that everything is going the way that we want it to, that every single moment is filled with good works. Father, we know that there are temptations and there are sins. And so, Father, I pray that our brothers and sisters in Christ this morning would be strengthened to exercise their faith in Jesus Christ. Father, you have given them everything that they need for life and godliness in this book. You have given them every strength that they need through your spirit. Father, might we all submit to you today in obedience. Might our faith be manifest through a loving obedience. We love because you first loved us. Thank you, Father. We ask all this. Amen.